I'm against nuclear power because I care about my children. But maybe then I should be for it because they'll need energy too and fossil fuels in 50 years time there won't be any left. There are renewable energies, but will that be enough? In the meantime with them there's no waste, but nuclear power. That said, the quantity of really radioactive waste isn't that big, a thimble per year per person. Multiplied by the number of people, that's a pretty big thimble. There are solutions, although storing them. But at least then we know where they are because the CO2 produced by oil and coal, hello greenhouse effect. On the other hand, there's the risk with the power plants, although in matters of safety there's no place more safe. In the end, nuclear energy is a source of problems, and at the same time it's a source of solutions. And you? Are you for or against nuclear energy? pellet size that it might the tip of my pinky and it contains as much energy as a ton of coal 147 gallons of crude oil or 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas okay guys welcome back to the Grimerica show we're going to be chatting nuclear with atomic rod atoms a little bit later uh, but first as always Graham, I was too scared to take the shot, Dunlop. <laughs> hey, buddy, how's it going? Good. Good. Yeah, we got Atomic Rod here, who people that listen to No Agenda, which some of them do, will know uh, Atomic Rod from, from there. He, uh, he gets in touch with Adam Curry and puts some common sense into the, the mainstream media fear porn that we hear. Anti-nuclear propaganda, petro-fueled anti-nuclear propaganda. Yeah, that's kind of what it's like, yeah. So yeah, very interesting chat with Rod. And uh, Darren was making a little reference to me going on a little overnight camping trip and being scared. So Squatching ain't easy. I wasn't squatching. That's not even in a Sasquatch area. Sasquatch has an area? It's not in the Sasquatch Reserve? That's right. Okay. Well, they do, you know, the Harrison Hot Springs and the coast. What about, that? What about the Sasquatch with a K? That's not his area either. <laughs> no. uh, I th thought Sasquatch could turn up anywhere, anytime. No, no. well, he could, technically. It looks pretty squatchy don't. where you were in the picture. You yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. You had a visitor. I did. But you have to wait to the intro to get the deets. The outro. Uh, outro, outro to get the deets on that. Yeah. So you weren't squatching? No squatching? Do you have any hindrance of maybe seeing Bigfoot? No. Didn't even no. cross your mind? Well, yeah, of course it crossed my mind. I always keep my eyes open for UFOs and Bigfoot. So what, you had to divide your time between looking out and sky. looking out? <laughs> <laughs> I it's did. It's tough to do any sky watching this time of year in Canada. Why is that? Because the fucking, it's bright out till yeah. 11 o'clock So that's night. what I was, I was waiting up for the stars and it just, it was too late. I tried to nap before that, but it was so hot. And I just come down from a run and I was like in my tent sweating. <laughs> Fun times. <laughs> sweating from the run. <laughs> it's true. People can't see my air quotes. No, that sounds fun. I don't know if I would, I would, uh, I don't want to say have the balls. Uh, maybe. 
right thing would be care enough. I guess I don't think I could get motivated enough to go camping by myself. Mm. I definitely probably wouldn't be doing any running. I, I would probably wouldn't mind like whittling around and making a fire, maybe killing something and eating it. That's more my thing. Really? Fuck yeah. You wouldn't fish just... ideally. No, but I mean, I'm not above eating a squirrel or something. There's no need for that. You just pack a freaking sandwich. It was just one night. Pack a like, sandwich no that's cut up from the turkey that got killed <laughs> up the road. Or the pig. Well, I never said that it was a meat sandwich. Was it a meat sandwich? Yeah. <laughs> there's got to be a better way to say that. Anyways, there's no need for killing things. Yourself. It's just best to have other people do your dirty work for you. I think vice versa. No, I try to eat less meat now anyway, so I really... I think, I, I think it's more respectful for me to take that shit down myself if I'm going to eat it. Don't you think? Like, I wish I had the freedom that I, I, I'd love to hunt all my own meat and shit. When I get the 200 mil that you guys will find out about in the outro, I'll just hunt all my meat. If I had to do that, I probably wouldn't eat meat. No? No. I'm close to not eating meat as it is, so. Fish, it's not yeah, a lot, man. You meat. fucking clobber a fucking moose, man. You got meat for a year and a half. So it's not like you're out dropping moose every fucking three weeks, right? I'll just buy some off of you. Trade, barter. Find something for you. Your meat sandwiches. <laughs> so, um, what do you got for what? me? Anything interesting? Maybe, uh. Yeah, we got some. Fi- I dug up uh, through my quotes here, profound UFO quote of the week, and I found one that could be somewhat uh, related to our topic tonight. Nuclear? (laughs) Nuclear? So this thing, UFO, fires a beam of light at the warhead, hits it, and then it moves to the other side and fires another beam of light. And the warhead tumbles out of space. What message would I interpret from that? The UFOs were telling us, don't mess with nuclear warheads. Major Mansman said, you have never to speak of this again. After an article about the incident years later, people would call and start screaming at me. One night, somebody blew up my mailbox. That was from U.S. Air Force Lieutenant Professor Robert Jacobs. From disclosure pages 184 to 187. Someone blew up an Air Force lieutenant's fucking mailbox. I guess, yeah. I got another one too because that was a real short one. Is that okay? It wasn't that short, but sure. Was the nuke in space? Did he say out of space? Maybe Uh, space is. Airspace. Oh. I remember seeing, I think there's a video that goes along with that one. I wonder if space is the thing. It seemed fantastic that there could be any such thing. At first, the temptation was to say that it was all nonsense, a series of optical illusions. But there have been so many reports from reasonable observers that they cannot be ignored. It seems hardly possible that all these reports could be due to optical illusions. That was from Dr. J. C. McKenzie, chairman of the Canadian Atomic Energy Control Board and former president of the National Research Council. January 1952. (laughs) There you have it. There you have it. UFOs are anti-nuclear weapon. That's right. Not nuclear power. They never, they never fuck around with the uh, nuclear power. Just the weapons. Unless it's them who are responsible for Hiroshima. 
or not Hiroshima, sorry, that was the States. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fukushima. So many Shimas. What do you think? No. No? We talk, really? Why does that even hooked up? I'm just trying to manage my administration uh, while I podcast here, buddy. Sorry. But how did it make the noise? Oh, did that come through your mic? Through the computer. So I, I got some feedback here. We don't really like to listen, read the feedback because it feels weird, but um, some of it's kind of relevant and makes us feel good at the same time. And really, Darren, I don't know what you think about this, but if we didn't get any feedback from people, it'd be hard to continue on the show, although we really love doing this ourselves and chatting with interesting people. It's the feedback kind of feedback that kind of makes it all worth it. Just knowing that people are catching what we're throwing. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. You don't mind if I read this? Go ahead. This is a guilty pleasure. This is from Alchemistic Mama from the USA. Alchemistic. Yeah. I love you guys, and I just can't get enough. I love everything about the show: the giggling, the honesty, RPJ's accent the stimulating conversations and hot topics. I can honestly say on behalf of housewives everywhere, nothing motivates me to do the dinner dishes quicker than the thought of firing up one of your podcasts. Keep them coming boys. Nice. <laughs> and then this is uh next one says great podcast uh, from, Oh, I don't know. I'm going to mispronounce this. Thales Miltus or Miletus. Where is it? Right there. Thalus Miletus. Thalus Miletus. Darren probably ha hit it home there. Mainly through guest interviews, Darren and Graham do a great job investigating various aspects of paranormal, fortean, supernatural, and esoteric subjects with a particular mind to how they relate with consciousness. The guests are always excellent and varied in their fields of study. The insertion of humor here and there, along with the occasional appearance of Red Pill Junkie, keeps the podcast fresh and entertaining. Not so much as a criticism, but more of a suggestion. I would say to the hosts, more to Darren, to be a little more open-minded when it comes to religion, even Christianity. Though organized religion is often maligned by those in the alternative esoteric studies, religion holds a lot of keys to the stuff that you guys take a more serious look into it. Nevertheless, an excellent podcast. Nice. Thanks. I got a rebuttal for you. Uh-oh. Trying too hard to be cool, but uh, still cool. What? From Tufal Hund. I really enjoy the interview segments, but the opening banter, sometimes up to an hour's worth, plays like a bad morning radio in a small town in 1992. <laughs> the sound effects are corny, not funny, and distract from the show. And to my untrained American ears, the hosts sound like Ricky and Julian from Trailer Park Boys. <laughs> All they need is bubbles and a yard full of cats to complete the ensemble. If it didn't take so long to get to the interview at the end, I would give it a solid five stars, but instead it gets a solid three. Interesting guests, great topics, and hopeless hosts. Wow. Was that a recent one? <laughs> yeah. It's a good thing we don't get a lot of those. Just shut the door right now. <laughs> I like them. I think you should stick with it and the acquired taste will happen. Or he could just press a fast forward button. I think you're trying too hard to be cool. Yeah, I don't know. That's the thing. I don't agree. We're just going with the flow here. 
At the Bob and Doug style. That's the cheesy sound effects he's talking about, buddy. Is it? Yeah. Perfect. Any synchros for me? Oh, I do, actually. And not from... I'm a rambling gram with synchronicities all over the web. And Darren is skeptical about everyone. And don't believe it yet. Yeah, I guess you can't like please everybody. I like that I my boots in the studio now. So, I've got one here. Um, Are you wearing boots or shoes or anything? Or thongs. <laughs> I like how you say that with a straight face. Those are called thongs where you come from? Where yeah. I come from, thongs, something different. You shouldn't say that on an audio podcast where people think you might be wearing a thong in our refrigerator. I'm ready to rate. I was at the gym just about this to. Is it you? <laughs> yeah. Nice. And you, buddy. And me? Yeah. I was at the gym? No, you were in the synchro. I was at the gym. Um, about to buy a padlock. And I get a text from Darren saying, we need a padlock for the studio. And it turns out I had a padlock in my toolbox the whole time. Yeah, but that's not... The important part is, is that... You don't you know, think that I don't would buy play into it? No. Hmm. I think it could. I never buy padlocks, obviously. I was just about to go to the counter to grab one. Specifically for the door of the studio? No. Or for your no. door no, of but your I was just about to at buy, the gym? Yeah. But Instead still, of paying the dollar every time? Is that what it is? No, it doesn't. Something? No, you just, you just have a padlock. So those are, that's an example of the little ones that happen to me all the time. What about when you look down at your odometer and it's 77777? What are you doing down there? Don't worry about what I'm doing. Producing the show. Actually, I guess that's more engineering. Yeah. I produce it with my credit card and you engineer it with your... Perfect. The, the, the equipment that I bought. <laughs> Perfect. That's why we're such a great team. And of course, you guys could help out uh, Graham with his credit card debt <laughs> uh, by checking out grimerica.ca slash support. I wonder how many we're up to now. We oh fuck, we keep forgetting to go through all the subscribers, donators. We got to do that. Yeah, we'll do next that week. next week. Yeah, right. yeah. We want to thank everybody for donating. It does it do, it does help. This wasn't supposed to be an expensive venture, and it's not by any means. But there are fixed monthly expenses, and we do have gas gear acquisition syndrome occasionally. So gas money always helps, or like the reviews, except for that nasty one that we read but good reviews help that was a three star man we yeah, got one stars on there already find a one star no it's okay remember those ones remember the other one we thought we were you know, we wanted to change the show <laughs> <laughs> anyways yeah there's other ways to to help out too um you can send in your spam to gram to gram and uh you can suggest guests and topics that you want covered Send in your trip reports. We all know what that is, or UFO sightings and trip reports. lucid dreams, synchronicities. Don't you have some lucid dreaming advice? Oh, yeah, right. I, I do. give your synchro a 3.42. 
Thanks. 4.42. I give you an extra one because it involved me. But it's too bad you got the standard gram minus three. <laughs> I'll save the lucid dreaming uh, seven sensational herbs for dream recollection, flying, and spirit communication for next week. Really? But I want an excuse to play the lucid dreaming jingle okay. for Teufel. All right. Let's do it. Is it real or a dream? What does that even mean? Oh yeah, that's another way you can help out too. Sending jingles in. Yeah, those ones are the ones we paid for with our bitcoins. But our best ones are the are all our all our favorite jingles are the ones that were made. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So a lot of people because we're not fucking creative enough at all. We don't have any creativity. And those other guys, as you can tell by the intro of our show, that doesn't really (laughs) resonate with people. Oh boy, maybe I should have just killed my mother. I shouldn't have thrown you on the spot like that. So no, we get lots of feedback from people about lucid dreaming. We had an episode of that, and it was really, really good. And some listeners have sent in like herbs and stuff, and or teas that they use to help um, create lucid dreams. So that I just stumbled across this article. Actually, it was on the others' report as well. The seven sensational herbs for dream recollection, flying, and spirit communication. So I'm going to link to it in the show notes because it's kind of interesting. Um, and I'm not going to get into the details of each one, but I'll just kind of try and name them here, although they all have very And these difficult... will help us lucid dream? Yeah. Uh, I've been having sleep tea every once in a while. Oh, nice. Not lucid dreaming tea, but sleep tea. So this is the first one is Zosa Dream Root. That's X-H-O-S-A. And that's for vivid and prophetic dreams. Hmm. The technical name of it is Silene Capensis. Where do you get that? Um, Africa. It's noted as the teaching plant and considered highly, highly sacred. Hmm. I'd like to try that one. Go to Africa. Celastris Panicolitis is the next one. It's the elixir of life. While this is a dreaming herb that may sound like Harry Potter would use, the amazing gift from Mother Nature packs a powerful punch and facilitates more than lucid dreams. What else does it facilitate? Longevity, sharpening the mind and memory, and it aids in concentration. Hmm. Like microdose and psilocybin. The next one's Blue Lotus, mind, body, and spirit herb. You can get that here, can't you? Probably, yeah. It's a favorite book from the yogis. Number four is wild asparagus root, fly by night. Reported to be so effective at allowing one to fly in their dreams, many herbalists will advise against its use at all if you are not seeking to fly in your dream states. So is that what you do? Eat a lot of asparagus root? No, you but seem, I should because that's my, that's my dream sign. So, Grab the flyer. <laughs> African dream being master spirit connections known to promote euphoric lucid dreaming states and tata Riti or african dream being is used by member by a number of tribes and cultures in asia australia and india mexican tarragon is the next one grow a garden of herbs for dreaming growing lovely flowering mexican tarragon can have you dreaming nightly and leave you with some eye candy in your herb garden 
There we go. No, that's the shit McKenna was talking about. Really? He said, yeah, he offset it with teas and herbs and such. <clears throat> and was able to reclaim dreaming. Really? When I said that, I thought pot and hindered your dreams. He he said, yeah, didn't didn't affect his. That's because that was pretty weak back then. No, he was talking present. Oh? You were there. Oh, was I? Oh, oh. That was probably two years ago. Oh, not Terrence. That was almost exactly two years ago, actually, I think. You're talking fucking Terrence? Dennis. Dennis. Oh, okay. Dennis? Dennis? <laughs> the next one is Mugwort, a versatile dreaming herb. Okay. Also, also called Artemisa vulgaris. Well, it sounds Vulgaris. like a guy out of like the Game of Thrones or something. Or this longtime staple in Europe is superior for treating stomach ailments and eliminating parasitic invaders. It also helps when heal while dreaming. Hmm. This has inspired me to get back into lucid dreaming again. Get back into it? Well, is it like get back into trying. Is it like riding a bike? <laughs> Not at all. I wish. We should see a new dream sign up soon, eh? Did I miss one? Seems like it's been a while. What's a dream? What do you mean? From Napoleon. Oh, yeah. I don't want to push him. I've been waiting patiently for the next episode. I like it. I'm usually not big into web comics, but I'm hooked on his. Yeah, that's another way you can help out, too. Napoleon does these awesome animated web comics, and, and uh, people send in their blogs, too. Yeah, we haven't got any new bloggers since I said we needed more bloggers. Well, have I even released that episode yet? No, I don't think so. <laughs> As we record this, I think about three or four days behind. Yeah. The family in town. That's right. It's been fucking a billion degrees. It's hard to be in the house. Plus the we're heat. losers. <laughs> Plus we're losers. <laughs> we're trying too hard to be cool. Uh, I gotta surprise you more often. And I had you a little flustered from this thing before we even started. <coughs> Perfect. Recipe for a spicy intro. What were we talking about? That's it, buddy. Were we in the middle yeah, of Yeah, just you're behind on an episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Quickly <Fine>. forget. <laughs> and bloggers. <laughs> we need, we're talking about bloggers. That's what we're talking about. Um, we're always looking for bloggers. We're looking for some more right now. It'd be nice to have, you know, I think we've got a bunch of great bloggers already. Um, some people doing some artwork, but uh, we're always looking for more. You know, it'd be great if we had enough bloggers that there was new content coming out once or, you know, one or more times daily. So yeah, if you're blogging someplace else already and you just want to reblog it on Great America or if you want to just blog or whatever you want to do, uh, let us know. We had a few people inquire about guest blogging and trading blogs. Um, I'm too fucking lazy to write any blogs, so that's probably not going to happen. Yeah, and, it's kind of hard with time yeah, right now. Yeah, it's not up to me to say uh, you can copy and paste our bloggers' blogs because that'd be up to them, not up to me. Yeah. Maybe you could do some guest blogging, Graham. No, uh, thanks. No? No, thanks. Maybe one day. How many blogs? Did you ever write a blog? I, I think did. I wrote, like, one. three of them. I did think. you write three? three? Yeah. I didn't write many more than three, I think. I can, I can I just repost those? I only wrote two or three myself. I don't even know. Uh, yeah, I think you do have a card. Let's check. No, you don't have to check right now. Let's check. Oh, I wanted to talk about Buddy's, uh, the listener from Vancouver. Or not Vancouver, BC someplace. 
Uh, fuck, I gotta mention this for sure. He went to the remote viewing thing. Remember the guy who was going to the remote viewing conference after he listened to the show? Right. He went and he wrote a bunch of blogs. Oh yeah, it's already happened, right? Keep talking. Keep talking. Oh, geez. Speaking of that, man. Okay, I've got an email about that. If you're going to go on that remote viewing one. Okay, wait. We did a little... So the blog is largelythetruth.com. Um, and yeah, he's got six-part thing. He went from BC, flew down to New Orleans. And he did a blog every day, I guess. Or he did a six-part blog anyway. People check that out. Largelythetruth.com. Uh, Graham will link to that in the show notes, of course. And that is our listener, Brennan. Brennan, yeah, he, Brennan yeah, from this, Victoria. Yeah, he had a synchronicity we talked about on that's the last probably, couple. That's probably a big thing for BC people. Yeah, to say, to say Victoria problem. instead of, or Vancouver nah, instead of Victoria. They're pretty laid back. It's not like Edmonton instead of no, Calgary. They're, no, they're pretty laid back. Um, just, oh, just, do you want me to stick on remote viewing for a sec here, though? He's still in... Uh, in there he's still in louisiana right now hmm. doing because he's a um uh, larger the truth is his website he's a uh, a writer storyteller he does a lot of paranormal stuff so he's going to all these spooky spots i think hmm. underneath highway 23 oh, that's his instagram we can't see any of the pictures because we're not on instagram oh yeah look that's where he was two hours ago wow cool yeah Anyway, uh, check out those blogs, and uh, thanks, Brendan. He actually, I'm going to repost those on the site. He gave me permission to actually encourage me to repost them there, which would... Uh, Great. Yeah, so I'll throw those up. I'll, fuck, we need a little page for that. I'll, I guess I don't want to throw them under my blog or your blog. Uh, I'll just throw them under the show. Yeah, yeah, sure. I got an email about the remote viewing exercise. Speaking of remote viewing, Ooh, we got, this, things are still like Perfect. coming oh, in. Yeah, yeah, I guess that should be coming in for a while. So he says, what was John's target? Because we did a remote viewing exercise and he gave us some coordinates to do. And so we sent it out to the listeners. And surprisingly, there was quite a number of exact matches. I attached my very quick and rough sketch. Haven't remote viewed in years, but it's a pretty straightforward process like riding a bike. LOL. Um, he says, key impressions were tall, looking down, open air, open space, airy, diamond shaped, diamond shaped in the center is the center of this area, possible baseball diamond, AOL, tall light AOL shine. AOL or LOL? AOL. Mm -hmm. That means, besides American online, tall light shining down on diamond, diamond shaped light shining down on open outdoors space. That was from Chris in London, Ontario. Thanks, Chris. London, Ontario. I wonder if he's fucking with us and he listens. Oh, really? Why? I don't know. London? Because of Paris? Because of the Eiffel Tower in Paris is the answer? No, that's nothing to do with it. No, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> I just mean because now the answer is out there. So if people were going backwards oh, through yeah. the apps or picking yeah. and choosing, they could know the answer and just... Yeah, but this isn't like a scientific study. I could see, like people, all I just could see people fucking having yeah, some maybe, fun yeah. with Graham. Yeah, yeah probably. <laughs> I you would. Could, you could, you're probably could tweeting people to do that. It could even be me. I used to live in London, Ontario. 
<laughs> Jagger still lives here. Hey, Jagger. I don't know if he listens. Probably not. But he wrote the intro music. Right on, buddy. That's about it, eh? Yeah, I think that about wraps it up. Um, as always, support the show, grammarica.ca slash support. Sign up for the newsletter. Sign your friends up for the newsletter, grammarica.ca slash news. Big thanks to Justin uh, for putting that together. Uh, what else? Review the show, grammarica.ca slash iTunes, or on Stitcher, because Android doesn't have a fucking forum, I don't think. Oh, I actually did hear about a website, though, that you could... Um, a website that gives you the button, the code to put a button so that people can just go click on it on their Android tablets or phones and it'll automatically either subscribe to the show in their podcatcher or it'll take them to the store where they can get a podcatcher if they don't have one. Okay, I'm not following you at all. But So you know how like in iTunes, if someone just clicks on our link... It'll fucking open it up in the podcast app and play right, it. Right. Android doesn't have that feature. Okay. Until now. They have until, a until now, someone's written some code. I forget the website, though. I got to look it up. And... Okay. I'll, I'll make a little note here and maybe we'll link to it. Yeah, we should have that. And eventually we'll have a button on the website that does that as well. I also wanted to make, say big thanks to Graham G over in the UK for uh, helping us out running some of our social media. And yeah, we'll say, thanks. Say thanks to Graham across the in table. In the G Force. The G Force. That's the Twitter, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's See, right. See you spend more Twitter time on thing. Twitter than I do now. That's all because of you Graham. Make sure you hashtag Gramerica. That's right. So people know. Yeah, people know. I guess we, you. We, we could just start doing like a dash G and a dash D. Yeah, maybe. But then we can't search it like Gramerica is a fuck off with your hashtag. <laughs> that's a lot of, you're wasting a lot of letters. I know, but I'm You only creative. get so many. I can fit all that into a small space. All right. Beauty. Well, uh, I think that about wraps it up. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, thanks. Uh, enjoy the chat with Atomic Rod. It was a good one. And uh, we will pick you up in the outro. Okay, guys, in America tonight, we're going to be chatting all things nuclear with Atomic Rod Adams. I've been looking forward to this one for a while since I first heard of Rod's work on Through the No Agenda, uh, the best podcast in the universe. <laughs> um, but first, how's it going, buddy? Hey, it's good. Waldo? Good. Yeah, we're. I'm, I'm excited about this, too. We, we had Rod scheduled a little while back, and people noticed that we kind of uh, disappeared, and we come back with Rod now. And Rod's a, 
a pro-nuclear advocate with extensive small nuclear plant operating experience, and he's a former submarine engineer officer. He's also founder of Adams Atomic Engines, Inc., and host and producer of the Atomic Show podcast. I've listened to a few of those shows, and, and we really want to have him on because I think he's got, a, he's got a bit of a different take, and it's stuff that we don't really hear a lot in the mainstream, so we wanted to learn a little bit about kind of like the other side of, uh, of the nuclear industry and talk about energy and a little bit of politics and American budgets and all that kind of stuff. He's had a lot of experience with that. So uh, without further ado, welcome to the show, Rod. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you. And I will uh, would like to say that as I'm not really the other side because I'm I'm opposed to the idea that any conversation is a two sided thing. There's many many uh, perspectives uh, involved, and and unfortunately, I think some journalists are trained by sports commentators who <laughs> believe that there's one team and they, then the other team. That's or a really maybe, good point. Yeah, maybe it's the bipartisan or the you know the two party system we have here in the United States. But, you know, there's, there's a lot of weird perspectives and a lot of different points of view, particularly with something as complicated as energy and nuclear energy. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. That's a really good point, because we, we, we talk about polarization a lot here in, on the show, and I get stuck thinking that there's one side or the other, because we're always trying to stay in the middle, right? But you've got, you know, it seems, a battle for grab. it seems like you got a pretty open mind on on energy and uh and the nuclear part so i'm glad you said that well one of the things that i like to point out to people is i'm a bleeding heart liberal uh i really believe strongly in uh, strong public education systems i i think that unions are great i've come from a family where about most well half of the adults were members of the teachers union um you know it's just i i really believe that we need to give people a, a hand up and uh, and that's one of the reasons why I'm so f in favor of nuclear. Now, in the U.S., people think it's really bizarre for a liberal, a liberal Democrat to to be in, in favor of nuclear. But there's not it's not really that rare. What's rare is some I've been uh, cowed into silence because they think that all of their friends are against nuclear. And it's not really true. So in general, you don't believe that people are lazy, really inherently lazy, that if you give them enough to get started, that they're productive? I don't think people are inherently lazy. I've worked with an awful lot of people over the years. I've yeah. had the, the experience of, uh, of working with, with sailors, uh, who many of, the, many of whom joined the Navy straight out of high school, um, hardworking people, talented, uh, may not uh, necessarily do great in school in a formal classroom environment. But man, I, I learned an awful lot from some, some guys who uh, just thought with their hands a lot better than I did. Um, I also had a, the experience of running a, a small uh, factory. Uh, actually, some people probably would have called it a sweatshop because <laughs> it was, it was located in uh, on the South <clears throat> Southwest coast of Florida. And our method of air conditioning was big doors and big fans. Um, and most of our lighting was provided by the skylights above. Uh, I was the only college graduate out of the 25 employees. Um, and probably half of my employees didn't even graduate from high school, but over a several year period, I, I realized just how hardworking that they were and, and how, you know, there for the, the grace of God, or, you know, the, 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 the great choice I made as a, as a pre preborn to pick the right parents. 
you know, I might've ended up in, in that situation. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. All that social mobility or the lack thereof. Yeah. I'm, and quite honestly, I came from a family where my, I mean, I I've read my father's, uh, you know, memoirs. Um, I mean, you know, there's a few pages, but, uh, he grew up in a, in a, a subsistence farm in Southern Georgia where they couldn't even afford to buy him a separate bed. He had to share a bed with his grandpa. Um, you know, he, he, they, if they saw $200 a year in cash, that was a lot of money. Mostly they just grew stuff to, f to feed themselves. Hmm. So did you, but, did you, uh, what did you guys make out of that factory? Um, it was a injection molding. Uh, so we had 25, uh, injection molding machines ranging from a, a small 25 ton machine to a, a pretty big 450 ton machine. And we could fill as much as uh, maybe 30 ounces. That uh, was the biggest mold we had. Um, so we, we made parts for boats like hatches and, and uh, then small parts latches. And we made medical supplies. We made uh, some cookie cutters for Tupperware in in the millions of parts we you know it's all kinds of different stuff whenever whatever we and we had some products that were our own we designed them and and sold them to retailers uh we had about half the products we made were uh, other but somebody else invented something built a mold and then had us fill it for them hmm. and it's you know, so it was interesting that was uh during a period of time in between my two navy careers hmm, interesting yeah. So, so about, about the nuclear stuff, I think I'd like to start kind of, um, maybe if you could talk about some of the myths that people like dispel some of the myths that people hear about in, uh, just their day-to-day -day life or whatever, some of the fears sure. and, and sort of some of the misnomers we have as a culture about nuclear energy. Well, one of the things I'd like to point out is almost everybody uh, who is engaged in the discussion about energy or or really thinks about things and even though they may not know a lot of details they can they can name on off the top of their head the three major accidents that have happened in commercial nuclear power they'll tell you about uh well, they'll say what about three mile island chernobyl and now fukushima yeah and i say well that's actually a pretty darn good endorsement <laughs> of nuclear energy yeah. that that you who know nothing about nuclear can name the three major accidents that we've had now let's, let's talk about a few details both tmi and fukushima happened without hurting anybody so major industrial accidents uh damage to plants to the point of destruction but nobody was hurt no member of the public was exposed to a substantial amount of radiation so you know they're they're essentially uh, non non events, although they've been highly promoted, um, and there's commemorations and people remind you about them all the time, which is why everybody can name on top of their head. Chernobyl was a big accident. Uh, it was started with a uh, an extremely, uh, to me, suspicious uh, test that that required uh, overriding a whole bunch of safety systems and telling the operators to ignore uh, their training uh, and to and to keep going, even though they, they were getting concerned and, and questioning. And they had a, you know, a party, a, a, what a functionary, I don't know what they call them, a, a party chick or whatever, I don't know what the Russian word is. They had a party guy who was really pushing them and saying, hey, you got to keep going. And so so then eventually they, put the, they got the plant in its absolute worst 
a most unstable condition, and they had an accident. Uh, yeah, there was some other problems. You know, the plant didn't have a containment, but if the operators had done their job, it never would have needed a containment because it never would have had an accident. Um, you know, there are 11 uh, RBMK reactors still operating in Russia. Now, RBMK is a type of reactor that Chernobyl was. And, of course, we've heard that the, that, you know, that there was a terrible design. It would never be licensed in the United States, and it should have had a containment and all that stuff. But quite honestly, some of that uh, talk is brought to you by people who want to sell Western-style reactors. Um, it's it's marketing talk. Uh, there wasn't that much wrong with the Chernobyl system. Uh, there were there were some RBMKs that were very well operated, and you know, sadly enough, um, the owners of those systems were forced to shut them down in in order to enter the uh, the European Union. I'm thinking specifically of Lithuania, which used to be a major electricity exporter, had two RBMKs. It provided essentially all of their own electricity and plenty of electricity to export to their neighbors. And uh, they had to shut those those well-operated plants down um, and now instead have to buy all their natural gas and electricity from somebody else. And quite frankly, it's Russia right now. Mm. Um, so uh, another myth, you know, one. so so bottom line, nuclear energy has got a great safety record. Uh if you add up all of the bodies that you can count from accidents in, uh, in in nuclear plants, including industrial accidents and all that stuff, you're probably talking less than 100 people. Um, heck and, com- and compare that to coal. It's- well, I mean, just let's, let's just talk about the year 2010, just because I happen to know these off the top of my head. Okay. In the United States alone. Now, of course, although, by the way, those three accidents, you know, you have to span the entire globe. One was in Pennsylvania one was in... Uh, uh, Ukraine and one was in J- Japan. So it, it required spanning the entire globe. Let's look at 2010 in the United States alone. In early January, there was a, a natural gas uh, rupture at, a, at a, a power plant that was being built, killed six people in Middletown, Connecticut. Uh, a few months later, the Upper Big Branch coal mine had a methane concentration buildup, had an explosion and blew up and killed 29 miners in uh, West Virginia. Uh, a, a month or two after that, the Deepwater Horizon uh, explosion and, and leak happened. Uh, the initial explosion killed 11 people on the rig. And then, of course, we all hopefully remember that it took about three months of, of continuing pumping of large quantities of crude oil into the Gulf of Mexico. My One of my home bodies of water. I spent a lot of time living in the Tampa area. Um, and th- that lasted for about uh, three or four months, 100 days or something like that. And uh, so, amazingly enough, as soon as they capped it, uh, the uh, British Petroleum's uh, advertising money helped the media remember to forget it uh, mm-hmm. and move on to something else. And then finally, uh, the last event that uh, made the news, and again, is probably forgotten except for the people that live there is uh there's a a small town in california called uh san bruno uh they had a big uh gas pipeline running through the underneath there's the subdivision and it exploded uh wiped out 50 homes and killed i believe it was eight total um so that's just one year that's just one country 
and every one of those uh, was affected was natural gas uh, that exploded. So, you, you know, if I was to try to list all the accidents that have occurred in coal, oil, natural gas, um, there would, you know, uh, the difference between them is they're so routine that it's a dog bites man story. With nuclear, when we have an accident, it's a man bites dog story that makes the, the news and is kept on the front pages for a very long time. Yeah. And part of that, uh, I believe, is the fact that the fossil fuel industry buys a lot of advertising. The, the news media will cover an event. They'll put it on the front page. It'll move to page seven <laughs> the next day. It'll move off of, out of the newspapers the day after that. And, you know, if, if the news media kept going back and, and repeating stuff about the event, they'd probably get a phone call from, you know, uh, somebody who's saying, you know, if you guys don't lay off, we can move our ad somewhere else. Um, you know, the nuclear industry almost never advertises. So I don't know who, who could do that, who could pick up the phone and tell the, me the media to, okay, yeah, we've we've taken care of it. You've covered the event. It was news, but now it's not news anymore. Move on to something else. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, you know, we we are treated to to you know. There's still people that are saying that the Fukushima accident is not over because uh, there's a little bit of contaminated water. Well, the water's so lightly contaminated, I would be willing to drink it if it didn't have anything like salt in it. Wouldn't it all sink to the bottom anyway? The heavy water. Well, heavy water is not um, really a, a something that's involved in in uh, conventional reactors. Now, of course, in Canada, heavy water is what you guys use for the the moderator in your reactors. Um, but in in the U.S. or in Japan and uh, most places around the world, use regular old light water. Um, there's a few other places where that are using heavy water reactors. India uses heavy water reactors. Uh, South Korea has a few. Argentina bought some. Um, and I think maybe there's a few in, uh, in Europe that Canada, the can, a few can-dos in Europe. I think Romania's got a few, but mostly it's light water. Um, the, the radioactive material that mainly is, is contaminating the, the uh, um, water in in fukushima is cesium-137 and then tritium which is an isotope of hydrogen that is essentially impossible to separate from uh water but tritium is is a very low energy beta emitter it's it's harmless in the concentrations that it, um are associated there and you know only if you concentrate it very carefully can you uh get yourself enough to cause damage to people. I wonder how many war numbers you could add up and add to that death toll. 2010. Do wars count? Do wars for oil count again? <laughs> well, I, I'm only counting direct uh, <laughs> impacts. There's certainly, uh, you know, and, and I probably missed a lot of accidents that didn't make it into the newspapers or at least into anything but a local newspaper. Um, I personally, you know, having spent, uh, 33 years wearing a uniform of one type or another for the U.S. Navy, uh, am extremely concerned about what the United States has done over the last 
well, the United States and Britain have done to to uh, take other people's oil. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Protect sea lines of communication uh, so that the world world can continue to access oil from regions in the Middle East and Africa. Um, I'm sorry, I misspoke there for a second. Yeah, that's, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, we didn't take somebody else's oil. It was our kind of baloney. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I'm and and I have nephews that have spent time, have, you know, made multiple deployments in recent years to uh, to protect uh, our access to oil. Um, my my son-in-law and my daughter have both made deployments to protect. Uh, our access to oil. So it, it's a personal thing for me. You know, we, we have the capability um, in the world to be less dependent on oil and natural gas. And and unfortunately, right now, the major oil companies are, you know, who are some of the largest companies in the world. If you look at the Forbes 500, uh, the, in the top 20, uh, 10 of them are oil companies. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> 10 of the top 20 yeah, companies. 10 are pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. Um, Walmart stores is one. There's uh, three auto manufacturers, Toyota, um, Volkswagen, and Daimler, Daimler from Germany. Yeah. Um, there's a, a, an insurance company. I think Berkshire Hathaway makes it in the top 10, top 20, I mean. Um, so, but mostly oil companies. And uh, their plan, you know, as as described recently at the World Gas Conference, is to try to get the world using more and more natural gas and moving it uh, from from places where it exists to places that need it uh, by liquefying it and transporting on the ocean, because that business model matches up pretty well with their current business model of uh, extracting petroleum and moving it you know, around the world in vast quantities. Yeah. Logistically, it stays the same kind of, yeah. It's very similar. Although the, of course, you have to make huge investments into the infrastructure uh, to be able to liquefy a natural gas, a, a liquefaction terminal. I think there's a project going on here in the U.S. We had an exist, I said, shouldn't say we, Dominion uh, had an existing terminal in Maryland uh, that had been there for probably two decades. And just to to add the liquefaction capability. It was just an, it was an import terminal. So they don't have to build new tanks. They don't have to build new uh, dock and all that stuff, but they're gonna build the capacity to make the gas liquid. That's a $3.8 billion project. Yeah, um, not a surprise. But, yeah, it, you know, it's, it's, it's expensive. Um, so, an, so another myth I, I was gonna ask you about is, uh, which I probably, think is a myth is the recycling aspect of it or, or like reusing, reusing uh nuclear waste and that type of thing. And then Harold, Harold, uh, one of our listeners from Florida, mm -hmm. um, dedicated buddy. Hey, Harold, he's uh he wants to ask you the same thing about, uh, reusing old nuclear fuel rods so that mm -hmm. still have 95% fuel left and can be recycled. He says, uh, he thinks MIT came up with this new tech reactor a few years ago and that France might be using it now. There, uh, we've known how to to make better use of of nuclear fuel for a very long time. In fact, the, the very first reactor that made electricity was a, a reactor called the Experimental Breeder Reactor Number One, 
EBR-1. And in 1951, that reactor famously lit four light bulbs and then uh, they, they upped the, the output and managed to power the buildings that it was located in. Um, and, and breeder reactor technology is, is something that we've been developing. We know how to do it. We've built several demonstration plants. Uh, we had a, a second one, the EBR-2, that uh, produced 30 megawatts and uh, ran reliably for over 30 years. Um, now, there, the, the technology that your reader talked about is probably transatomic, um, which is a, an MIT, two MIT uh, postgrad or PhDs, uh, Mark Massey and Leslie Dwan, uh, have come up with a, a, a pretty good uh, design for a reactor that uh, eats waste. Um, so, but there's, there's a wide variety of uh, nuclear technologies. I was involved in a discussion recently with somebody who said, well, we can't put all our eggs in the nuclear basket. We still need diversity. I said, nuclear is not a single basket. There's heavy water reactors. There's gas-cooled reactors. There's reactors that use thorium. There's reactors that use uranium. There's reactors that use plutonium and uranium. There's reactors that use light water. There's reactors that use boiling water. There's, I mean, it's, there's, we, we have a lot of ideas. We have a lot of, of, of reactors that have been demonstrated. Um, and, you know, we, they're, we kind of locked in on one technology, um, but there's no reason why we have to consider it to be, you know, a single basket any more than combustion is a single basket. You know, atomic fission is a source of heat um, and it can be used in a variety of different ways. And, and, and some of those ways or a lot of those ways can be, <clears throat> you can recycle the waste from them then? Absolutely. And, yeah. and the neat thing um, to me is that although there's material that we've put through a one-time use, and it does, as your reader said, still contain 95% of its potential energy, we haven't thrown that material away. It's not like we, we used it inefficiently and we threw away the, the, the residues. We've stored those residues in very carefully designed, engineered uh, systems. Um, I personally believe it's a good thing that we haven't uh, actually started putting any of it deep underground because I prefer to keep that stuff up on the surface. It's not hurting anybody. And if it's on the surface, it keeps reminding innovative thinkers that it's there and it's available. It's already been mined. It's already been refined to a certain extent. And as time goes on, it gets easier and easier to handle well, one of the reasons that recycling is, is expensive if you try to do it right away is that when fuel comes out of a reactor, it has a lot of very radioactive but short-lived uh, materials that, that uh, produce a lot of radiation. It requires a lot of shielding. It produces a, a pretty good amount of heat that interferes with chemical processes. So it's pretty difficult stuff to handle. If you let it sit around for 30 or 40 or a hundred years, it's a lot easier. If you let it sit for three hundred years, it's but like handling the stuff that's come out of the ground. Uh, so you, the the facilities to recycle hundred year old fuel would be far less expensive than re facilities to recycle one hundred day old fuel. I've never uh, thought about that way. Well, very right. few people have. This is again one of the reasons why I say I'm not the other side. Just another view. I have I have a 
the experience of having been on board submarines. I, I was in charge of an engineering department for about 40 months. Um, you know, every watchstander had to go through me to get qualified. And after I finished that job, I I had the the luxury of going to shore duty at the at the Naval Academy, which has a great library. Um, and I was used to working long hours, 80 to 100 hours a week. So when I had a, a 30 to 40 hour a week job at the Naval Academy, I had plenty of free time on my hands. And I, I spent a lot of time in the library, read a lot of books about nuclear energy and kept you know, trying to figure out why the rest of the world had a completely different view of nuclear than what I had gained, having gone to sea with a reactor. Heck, I even hugged a reactor a couple of times, literally, because there was a, this ladder on the backside of the reactor that I had to go down and do some inspections. And the only real way to climb down was, was to wrap my arms around the shield of the reactor and hold on as I was going down. Uh, one of the the um, wonderful things about U.S. Navy reactors is that Admiral Rickover made sure that every place in the reactor is accessible to human beings. The unfortunate part was Admiral Rickover was five foot two and weighed 110 pounds, soaking wet. <laughs> so, so the things that he considered to be accessible weren't quite as accessible for me. <laughs> So how th those are smaller reactors, right? Like, I wonder, do you, th do you think the, is it, is the future more based on say a smaller reactor that sits on the middle of your block and is replaced every 50 years, or is it more in a, in a bigger power plant? I'm a huge advocate of building smaller reactors that can be built uh, in a series fashion uh, more similar to building a ship or or a commercial airplane uh, than you know building one of a kind huge mega project construction. Uh, there's a lot of problems that have associated with locking uh, oneself into the only people that can buy your product is a is a complicated uh, group of people that come together and, and form a partnership to build a couple of units. We have a project going on in the U.S. There's two uh, AP-1000s. They're 1,150 megawatt power plants. The whole project is a, about a 14 to $16 billion project. The major owner is Georgia Power, which is a subsidiary of one of the largest utility companies in the United States. But they only own 43% of the project. They're partners with um, uh, a, a two more utility companies and a, and a city. Uh, and, of course, that makes it pretty complicated to if that's what you have to do to sell your product. So I think that small reactors have a big place. Uh, they open up the, the uh, potential customers to a much larger group of, of potential customers. It doesn't have to be a complicated consortium. Um, they can fit into a lot more markets. So you're not limited to, you know, hey, if the utilities aren't buying, uh, the vendors don't have anybody to sell to. Um, and, you know, electric utilities around the world tend to go in spurts. They either they're all buying or they're no, nobody's buying. And uh, you need a more diverse set of customers. So smaller reactors allow that. Um, I, I do like the vision of having, you know, neighborhood-sized reactors. Uh, and even uh, in my 
my more fanciful times, I, I believe that um, there there is an opportunity sometime in the future to have personal reactors. Hmm. Have one in your basement that provides all your heat and electricity and uh, becomes a, a an asset you can pass on. It, it wouldn't need to be refueled for several generations. Is that tech? Or is there any technology out there now that's close to that? Like, if I yeah, had a billion dollars, could I set up an island with my own little backyard nuke that'll last me a hundred years? Sure. What would if that actually, run? Yeah. Yeah, it would probably. You know, you you. I don't know exactly right now. The 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 closest technology that's available is uh, some reactors that have been dyned, designed for the space program. Uh, and so NASA has designs and has actually operated a few test reactors. I don't think that NASA's ever put actual fission reactors in space. The Russians have. Uh, they had some satellites that were powered by by small reactors. Um, but these the, the reactors designed for space are you know the size of a kitchen trash can, and uh, you know they operate for forever essentially. Wow. Really, if we want to go to if we want to to actually explore space, the only way we can do that is with nuclear energy. Um, we just simply can't get the specific, um, I can't what they call it again, there's a measure of effectiveness for a rocket, but uh, the specific velocity or whatever um, for chemicals is too low uh, and you have to carry too much material. Um, there, we, have, we had designs and we even tested uh, nuclear thermal rockets at a place called Jackass Flats. Um, it was the rover program, and uh, they they actually put a rocket engine upside down so they could light it off and sh and shoot the stream out and and run all the tests and measure it. Um, some pretty amazing technologies, but unfortunately, in that was in the early '60s, and when Kennedy made his uh, statement that we're going to go to the moon in 10 years. Uh, the people funding the nuclear thermal rocket program said, well, you guys are really too far away to make it in 10 years. So we've got to focus all of our resources on the chemical rockets, uh, even though we know that they're a, you know, a, a much less capable uh, technology, at least over time. You know, they hit their asymptote that limits their performance much earlier than a nuclear thermal rocket would. <laughs> What about what about fission versus versus fusion? What's the difference between those two? And is, is it? Do you think that's going to play a role in our lifetime? Uh, the big difference is that fission works and fusion doesn't. Um, at least not on Earth. Uh, and, <laughs> well, I, I shouldn't say that because we do know how to blow things up with fusion, but I'm not a big fan of weapons. So um, the fusion has been the the energy of the future for about the last 55 years. And we're not, I don't believe we're any closer today than we were before I was born. Um, I think fusion has, fusion has received an awful lot of resources and uh, there's an awful lot of people who, who uh, tell the world that they're going to produce uh, the, the clean kind of nuclear energy. Um, but it it's just really hard because in order to make the fusion reaction work, you got to establish conditions that we just don't know how to contain. We even if we were able to to get a sustaining fusion reaction, we wouldn't know how to take the heat and make it useful because it's too hard to get the heat out of the the reaction. Mm -hmm. So I'm I'm not a fusion fan. I like fission because 
here's what happened to when we to develop fission into a power source. Uh, in 1934, Enrico Fermi and, and some friends irradiated every uh, element in the periodic table with neutrons and it did some testings. And they actually created fission when they irradiated uh, uranium, but they didn't realize it was fission in, in 1934. There was a lady named Ida Nodak that suggested they ought to test for lighter, lighter elements, but they, they ignored Ida and went on to some other things. They were distracted by political events. You know, 1934 was a pretty um, unstable time in Europe and, and particularly in Italy. And Enrico Fermi's wife, Laura, was Jewish. Uh, so he had some other things on his mind besides continuing on. Hmm. So 1939, um, a couple more scientists. These, these were uh, German scientists, uh, Otto Hahn and, and Fritz Strassmann. Uh, irradiated uranium and tested for lighter elements and noticed that they found what looked, appeared to be barium. Uh, Lise Mittner and uh, uh, Otto and her nephew, uh, Otto, I can't remember his name. But anyway, they they figured out that what uh, Hahn and Strassmann had done was to split uranium. They calculated how much energy was released. They uh, named it fission after the the uh, splitting process that uh, plant um, cells go through, um, the dividing process. So uh, let's see, that was 39. Uh, Bohr brought over the news to, to the U.S. People, a few other people did testing and were able to quickly reproduce the fission reaction. 1942, December 2nd. Uh, the first fission reactor was constructed by a few uh, uh, out-of-work football players and some scientists. Took them about a month to build the, the total reactor, including machining the, the graphite bricks. Um, 1953, so just a, a few years later, and of course there was a war, it was a war involved. 1953, we... Uh, Rickover and his boys produced a power reactor in the desert uh, that was had produced enough power to push a submarine across the ocean. They ran the, the reactor and tested that as an assimilated trip across the ocean. 1955, uh, the Nautilus went to sea and ran circles around uh, conventional reactors. 1957, the first commercial reactor in the United States was built, uh, was, was operating. Sorry, when I was built, it was operating commercially. Uh, the, the Brits beat us. They had a reactor operating commercially in 1956. By 1990, uh, nuclear reactors, fission reactors in the United States were producing more electricity than all of the generators in the U.S. produced in 1960. All the electric power producers in the U.S. produced in 1960 were being beat by the, the fission reactors that we had operating commercially. Oh, by the way, we also built a couple hundred submarines and, and aircraft carriers and all that stuff. Hmm. So that... fission, fission works. It, we, we know how to do it. It's controllable. It's reliable. It's safe. It's clean enough to run inside a sealed submarine. Um, so I'm not sure why we spend so much money uh, chasing fusion instead of using the money to improve fission. 
Do you yeah. think so? You've got to you've got to be open to the idea that there's some sort of um, behind the scenes action going on there. Like even to the point nowadays where you know, I mean, obviously the fear of nuclear weapons is is a real one, but we can kind of use that as a facade to stop people from chasing nuclear energy altogether, almost as a way to suppress it even further. And who would want to suppress nuclear energy? That's a rhetorical question. Of course, yeah. <laughs> there, there are, there are, you know, as I said, ten of the uh, top twenty companies in the in the world uh, sell fossil fuels, and uh, they prefer to have a market where there's slightly less supply than there is demand, because that, you know, pushes the price curve towards a more profitable level. So it's not like they couldn't get into the technology. They've really got the infrastructure to ship oil and, and natural gas around. And then, like you said, they keep the, the supply just below the demand. Yeah. And, of course, you know, there's, there's very recent uh, demonstrated uh, economic history that shows what happens when the supply is just a little bit more than the demand. You know, because the, the, the Saudis weren't willing to cut back their production, they have driven the price of oil from, you know, a, a sustained level above $100 a barrel, you know, it dipped down below, below 50. I think it went all the way to $40 a barrel. That's a huge difference. Yeah. You know, imagine, you know, the, you're, you, you've dug wells, you've, you've built your infrastructure, and you're, you're kind of counting on being able to sell your product for a hundred bucks. And all of a sudden you're, you're having to figure out how to make a profit selling it at 50 or 60 bucks. Uh, there's some Canadian producers that are not real happy about that. There's some shale guys that are not real happy. But matter of fact, nobody's happy about it. Who sells oil? People that buy it are kind of, I think it's kind of cool, hmm. but uh, you know, it, it doesn't take much oversupply of a commodity like oil or natural gas to cause the price to collapse. What about? Here, in the U here in the U.S., we had uh, natural gas being sold to electric utilities in 2008 was $12 a million BTU. Uh, we had a, 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 the Great Recession started, and uh, the demand you know, fell off a little bit, uh, maybe somewhere around 5% uh, change in demand. The price of natural gas fell from $12 down to $4, um, and then eventually drifted below $2 a million BTU because there was just a little bit more supply than demand, and all the storage reservoirs got filled. And once you fill up storage, what do you do with the extra stuff? You can't keep it around. It's explosive. Hmm. So you sell it at whatever people will pay. Um, and that's the way oil works. You know, if you get too much of it, you fill up all your, your storage containers, and then what do you do? You know, it's hard to crank down the, the, the wells that are producing. What do you they think can. about, speaking of uh, that topic, what do you think about peak oil? Do you think, you know, we've supposedly been at peak oil for about 20 years now. Um, do you think that's, do you think that's like something that we should be concerned about? Or do you think that's more just propaganda, propaganda to drive up the price? Um. I believe that we we have more of a, a plateau than a peak. Uh, it's not going to be a sharp thing, but it, un, you get to to a certain 
point where you've uh, extracted all the easy stuff, the easy stuff to find, which is the big reservoirs, the uh, reservoirs that flow easily. They're in sandstone. It just, you know, easily gives up its its gas or they're pressurized by natural gas and and that makes the oil flow easy. You know, there's there are places where, you know, it's just easy to get oil out. Saudi Arabia, they used to be able to just poke a, a pipe in the sand and you'd have oil coming out. Texas has a few wells like that. So we've got the easy stuff and and yeah, there's still a lot of oil left. Um it's just getting harder and harder to uh, find it and extract it. There, you know, there's more and more tight reservoirs being uh, being uh, developed. The uh, oil sands in Alberta require a pretty significant amount of effort to get the to turn the the material into usable oil. Um, when you get to go deep offshore, it's it's harder and more expensive. Uh, you know, if we didn't have nuclear, we could piddle around on oil for a while. I don't know how many, how long, but things would get more and more expensive, and there'd be fewer and fewer people living the kind of lifestyle that I, I was blessed to grow up with, which was you know middle class America with with cars and swimming pools, and a, every you know a few people had their own private airplanes, and most everybody I knew had a boat. Um, you know, a powerboat, uh, you know, that, that kind of use of, of oil will, you know, disappear if we don't, uh, find a less expensive, uh, form of energy. And well, we, we did find a less expensive form of energy. It's called you know, actinide fission. <laughs> well, actinide fission, it's, you know, it can, it can be uranium. It can be thorium. It can be, uh, plutonium. It can be a mixture of, of uh, trans uranic materials, uh, the stuff that people call waste. You know, we've got a bunch of that uh, already mined and above ground and and being uh, stored and monitored. So eventually when we need it, you know, we can move to that. Yeah. You know, it is cheaper initially to just keep using fresh material because it's not very radioactive and it's easy to handle. Mm -hmm. uh, once it's been through a reactor, there's some kind of irritating um, isotopes that that make it challenging to handle can be done. It's just expensive. So through your research, uh, you were mentioning you did a lot of reading after you got um, off the submarine or whatever, and you're <clears throat> looking into that. Did you come across any other forms of energy that you'd found that, you know, being suppressed or that had potential that never made it due to, you know, like FBI style raids on Tesla, that type of thing? No, I, I didn't. I, I actually, I became very curious and, and, Quite honestly, I was a little bit uh, um, apologetic about the fact that I'd been a, a chief engineer on a submarine, uh, but my undergraduate degree was in English. Uh, <laughs> so I decided I needed to to beef up my formal engineering uh, credentials a little bit. So I started taking, so I, I audited some courses in uh, mechanical engineering and then uh, ended up going into uh a series of courses taught by a guy named Chi Wu. He called himself Bob. A, a very intelligent, uh, well-respected, well-published uh, professor at the Naval Academy. He actually wrote the book on ocean thermal uh, energy conversion, OTEC. Mm -hmm. And I mean that literally. If you, if you go look up ocean thermal energy conversion and, and look for the last name of W-U and 
C-H-I-C-H, I think, Ch. And uh, anyway, he, he taught a series of courses on alternative energy. And we learned about uh, solar, wind, different kinds of windmills, vertical uh, axis windmills. We learned all kinds of stuff. And I did, uh, you know, formal calculations, wrote papers. Um, and I still got the workbooks from that course. I, I started to get really skeptical about anything that, that um, you know, people were touting a lot because, like, I designed a, uh, a a water heater for a swimming pool. I, I grew up as a swimmer, so was, I thought that was kind of a cool little project. And uh, I swam outdoors year-round, and sometimes the water wasn't well heated. So that, that was what motivated me to design this project. And it turned out that even in a very sunny location in California, uh, and I had to keep the pool covered, you know, this is a simulation, but I had to keep the pool covered for about eight hours a day to prevent uh, evaporation from cooling it down. Um, actually, it's 12 hours a day uh, to keep evaporation from cooling it down. And my collector had to be bigger than the swimming pool. Mm. So you had to get enough energy to keep that pool at a moderate temperature of 72 degrees. So that kind of, you know, I, I just kept looking and couldn't find anything that had been. Um, suppressed i think there was you know the the tesla coils and stuff if there was energy if there's the kind of energy that tesla talked about we'd all be fried um you know we, there's just not that kind of energy hanging around uh out there what we do know is that uranium and thorium have an incredible amount of energy stored in a very small mass you know i, I keep a one of the, the simulated fuel pellets that the American Nuclear Society passes out to uh, to illustrate the energy density. It's, you know, it's a pellet size that it might, the tip of my pinky, the, uh, the first joint, and it contains as much energy as a ton of coal, 147 gallons of crude oil, or 17,000 cubic feet of natural gas. And uh, that's using that pellet in our current light water reactor technology, which still leaves, a, uh, I think it only gets, you know, 5%. So that means there's 20 times as much energy available. So if you're able to fully fission it, it'd be a pellet compared to, to 20 tons of coal. Um, so, so is there, is there a difference between that actinite fission as an energy and the way uh, nuclear weapons are, are created? Um, yeah, nuclear weapons require uh, very uh, high concentrations of fissile material, and they're designed to have a very fast reaction. They don't have control rods. They don't have moderators. Um, you know, they're not designed to release their energy slowly. Okay. Uh, and again, as I said, I, I'm not. I'm not a fan of of nuclear weapons. I I would prefer for all that material to be converted into fuel for nuclear reactors. Mm -hmm. um, there's there are many reasons why. Uh, I just you know, and I I've got a fair amount of experience with with all the planning associated with with nuclear weapons. I was on two strategic missile submarines. Um, I just think that that their, their time has come and gone, and it's time to move towards complete completely eliminating weapons and and quite honestly um i believe that the that the whole non-proliferation 
uh, movement is mostly designed to slow down the spread of nuclear energy technologies, not hmm. nuclear weapons technologies. And in my heart of hearts, I believe that that most of the the um, emphasis on Iran's nuclear capabilities is the sub messages coming from uh, energy competitors of Iran that don't want Iran to be able to stop burning its natural gas uh, internally and start exporting that back into the market. And that they don't want Iran to be a nuclear energy expert that can sell reactors to others who would stop burning oil and natural gas. Um, and, and much of the pressure uh, for doing something about Iran is coming from Saudi Arabia and Israel. And Israel's not a famous energy producer, but a few years back, they found some very large natural gas deposits in the Eastern Med, and they really want to export those natural gas, uh, that natural gas production uh, as uh, a big economic um, engine to fuel their economy. And of course, it would be much better to export it if Iran wasn't also exporting in competition with them. I'm not sure I understand this question, but Harold's chiming in again here. Are there certain reactors made just for weapons then? There were um, production reactors built um, in uh, Hanford and, and Savannah River that were designed to convert uranium-238 into plutonium-239. They were material production reactors. And uh, they did produce a lot of other heat. And except for one of those production reactors, we just kind of threw away the heat. We never tried to make electricity with it. But the, we did have one reactor in Hanford called the N reactor, which was both a material uh, rea a plutonium production reactor and an electricity production reactor. Hmm. It was uh, undergoing some renovation in 1986 when Chernobyl uh, had its accident and the D Department of Energy quietly didn't restart it because um, on, on many levels, the N reactor had a lot of similarities with the Chernobyl reactor. It was moderated by graphite, it was cooled by water, it did not have a full containment. Um, it was, there were several differences that it made it much safer and less likely to go into an unstable condition, but it was never restarted. There's an interesting video available uh, of President John F. Kennedy visiting Hanford uh, at the time they were they had made the decision to add the electric generating capability to the N reactor. It was a pretty big event to have the president come visit one of the national labs, and uh, the video was was full of. Uh, positive thinking and and Kennedy made a very inspirational speech out there and I think in night it was maybe the summer of sixty three. Hmm. That's interesting. So I, I wanted to also before before I forget and, and leave this part is because this is kind of what I learned researching you know y your topic here and and for you coming on the show I you know I watched like Pandora's Promise which I kind of wanted to ask you about mm -hmm. but I also heard a couple of your podcasts and you're talking about the linear no threshold and the low dose radiation and it kind of gets into 
I think what, what you could put in context for us about, you know, the various background radiations around the globe. Yeah. It's not really a good no, question, it's, no, but it's, no, it's, I understand what you're asking. Um, the, the linear no threshold uh, dose is actually translated into a much more marketable uh, uh, condemnation of, <laughs> of radiation. And, and which is, which is when somebody like Helen Caldicott or, or one of the professional anti-nukes will say, there's no safe dose, right, right. Radiation, which means, you know, linear no threshold means that the model that is being used for radiation protection is that every bit of radiation all the way down to zero uh, causes some amount of damage to, to human cells and some additional risk of negative health consequences. Right. Now, of course, we don't live in a zero radiation environment. The average exposure, uh, if you don't include medical exposures, uh, to somebody living in the United States or Canada is somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 millirem or 3 millisieverts, to use the international um, uh, unit. Now, if you add in medical exposures, of course, medical exposures are, are not uh, uniformly distributed across the population. Some people get a lot more than others. Um, you know, people that are being treated for cancer or or getting CT scans or something like that get a lot more dose than than people that are just you know living that just get an X-ray once in a while. Um, so, but if you if you average the medical exposures across the whole population, at least in the U.S., that adds another three millisieverts. So you're getting now the average dose, uh, including medical exposures in the U.S., is about six millisieverts a year. Now, again, the the uh, the anti nukes say there's no safe dose, and our Environmental Protection Agency uh, has issued regulations that say that when we're designing our uh, storage repository um, for used nuclear fuel, that they want to bury, that some people want to bury underground, they say that in order for that facility to get licensed, we have to prove that nobody will get more than 15 millirem. That's one twentieth of the background. <laughs> okay, I can't even. I can't even. Figure, I in, I can't in, in, in quick in my head tell you how many. I think that's point zero zero one five millisieverts, and our average background is three millisieverts. Again, one twentieth as much. Um, and and we're supposed to to make sure that nobody is exposed to that level. Um, over the first 10,000 years that the facility would be in operation. And then we have to make a calculation. Nobody ex exceeds more than 100 millirem for the next um, 990,000 years. So up to a total of a million years. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely absurd um, that to try to control doses to that level. I, I mean, Back in the day, was on a submarine. I couldn't even measure 15 millirem a year. I mean, that, that was way below the sensitivity of our instruments. <laughs> yeah, that puts it in context. Okay. So, all right. So, I could tell you a, a quick story about the linear no threshold dose because 
we were handling radi radiation, radioactive material uh, from starting about 19, in 1897 when uh, Henry Becquerel discovered that uranium was radioactive. Um, you know, and the, the Curies did their thing. There were, we've invented the X-ray machines and people were using them for medical. Um, there was, radium was one of the world's most valuable substances ever. Mm -hmm. A gram of uranium sold for $100,000. A gram of radium, sorry, sold for $100,000. Actually, it sold for $120,000, but they, uh, somebody get, uh, got a discount, a 20% discount, so that they could raise enough funds to get Marie Curie a gram of radium, the, one of the elements she had, did, had isolated. Um, imagine that. That's $1927. A gram of radium was $120,000 in 1927 because it had unique physical properties, i.e. it was radioactive and gave off gamma and alpha radiation and could be used in, in, in healing people. And it could also make uh, watch dials glow and that kind of stuff. Um, How could it be used in healing? Well, it was, it was used in almost every hospital, the major hospitals, were using radium as a, a treatment for cancers and then a, a number of other uh, ailments. Uh, there, radium was used to uh, treat um, pilots who needed to have their, their nasal passages better open so they could, you know, clear their ears when they were going up in, in elevation. I think there were, I can't remember the name name of the treatment, but there were probably 30,000 pilots that were purposely exposed to radium that would, they'd put it into a little pellets of radium and put them up their nose and, and it worked great. When it was this? Uh, 1930s. Oh, 1940s. crazy. It, that, well, no, it's not crazy. It, it actually didn't even... <laughs> It actually didn't didn't even stop until 1950s, um, and there's there's pretty good studies of the, of the long term health effects, and um, there aren't any. And they switched over to cocaine, or is that well, that was where the seventies pilots <laughs> rock stars well, clearing their nose? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but there were there was other treatments treatments for adenoids. There were. Um, I uh, can't remember all the others, but, but anyway, it, it was, it was, that's why it was so valuable because it was used in medical treatments. That's, uh, they would, they would actually milk the radium and, and, and take the radon gases that were uh, generated from radi radium's decay and use the radon in treatments as well. Um, so is, so is, is that what you, you would call the, the radiation hormesis then is, is that some radiation can heal? Well, yeah, I'm, yeah, this is actually, um, well understood medical science and, uh, before the 1950s. Now in 1927, the, the Rockefeller foundation funded a guy named Herman Muller to irradiate fruit flies, uh, Drosophila, um, and see if that would cause the fruit flies to, to mutate. And he used very high doses, I think in the neighborhood of four or five sieverts. These aren't millisieverts, those are sieverts. Uh, and he did uh, find that there was an elevated level of mutation. And uh, from about 20, 1927 through 
uh, the early 1950s, Herman Muller was sort of a lonely voice saying that that all doses of radiation could cause mutations and that uh, any mutation is bad. And uh, he he kept talking and 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 finally convinced more of his geneticist colleagues that that was the truth. Now he was doing all that talking um, while he was you know working in places like. Uh, Nazi Germany and and Soviet Union. Um, he came back to the U.S. in 1939 uh, after spending six years in the Soviet Union, um, and then he, he he couldn't get a job. He was hired to teach at the uh, University of Massachusetts. Oh no, I'm sorry, at Amherst College. Sorry, he wasn't at University of Massachusetts. It's a very small private school, Amherst College, and he only could only get a job there because. Most of the scientists were employed uh, in war projects, and Mueller didn't really like to teach, but he, he endured it because he, he needed the money. Um, he was let, let go from that job right after the war ended. Uh, but the Rockefeller Foundation found him another job at uh, Indiana University and, and helped fund a pretty decent laboratory, and he was doing some more work with radiation and mutations. And uh, in 1956, the uh, right around the same time that that the UK and the US were starting to build commercial nuclear power plants, um, the Rockefeller Foundation asked the National Academy of Sciences to conduct a study of radiation health effects because they didn't believe what the uh, Atomic Energy Commission was saying. Uh, and at the same time, the Atomic Energy Commission was getting a lot of grief because they were doing uh, atmospheric testing, uh, and just, you know, just letting the stuff fall to the ground, and so the fallout uh, was was becoming a concern, and and the people wanted to know what the health effects were, but they didn't want to ask the the Atomic Energy Commission because they said they had a vested interest in continuing to test. Mm. So, only the Rockefeller Foundation funded the National Academy of Sciences to conduct uh, a, a big study. They had six committees uh, in the uh, and six committees from the NAS study. One of them was the genetics committee, and it consisted of all the everybody on the committee was active geneticists. The chairman of the committee was a guy named Warren Weaver, who had been the Rockefeller Foundation's check writer. Uh, he had approved all grants associated with molecular biology and genetics from 1932 to 1959, and. Uh, Warren Weaver was a chairman of the Genetics Committee. Everybody on the committee had received funds from the Rockefeller Foundation. Believe it or not, after the, the they issued their report, saying that that they, there was no threshold and that radiation doses were dangerous all the way down to zero. That report was published the next day in full. The full text of a scientific report was published in the New York Times, and there was a front page uh, article about the perils of radiation. Hmm. Now, how many scientific reports do you know of that get published in full in the New York Times? It took three, no, it took four newsprint pages to publish the whole report. Imagine the size of the New York Times and covering the entire, of course, there was some ads associated with it too, so it wasn't really full pages, but it was, imagine, I've got a copy of, of that publication. It's pretty interesting. Well, and it's just it's just as bad nowadays in some ways because you don't really know what to believe. Even the scientific reports, you know, who's funding the research and what kind of media is it getting, and and who's 
you know, pushing one side or the other? Like, how do you sift through all the, all the stuff, you know, you do a lot of research on all this and you keep up to date with all that. How do you piece it all together? Well, I have a, I have a jaundiced view. Uh, whenever there's oil and gas money associated with energy research, I'm, I'm suspicious. And oh, by the way, where did Rockefeller get his money from? Standard oil. Yeah. The, one of the biggest, he was one of the richest people ever um, in, in relative terms. And, uh, you know, his, his, and, and his, his sons and grandsons uh, were still very active in the oil business, financing oil. David Rockefeller, for example, was the chairman and CEO of the Chase Manhattan Bank for years, which yeah. was had a huge business in financing international oil development. Um, you know, the Rockefeller brothers, uh, it was David and, and Lawrence and, and uh, Nelson, I mean, those guys were all very uh, involved, and they were very close to the to the foundation. They didn't just uh, give their money and let somebody else run it. They they had close tabs on what they were doing. So yes, I'm very suspicious of why the Rockefeller Foundation, first of all, funded Herman Muller's high dose radiation experiments in 1927. Why they kept giving him money all the way through his retirement in 1960. Uh, I mean, he was a pretty prickly guy, um, wasn't even a very good teacher, but uh, he he certainly uh, pushed the notion that all radiation is dangerous, even down to the very, you know, to levels that are, you know, basically the same as natural radiation that we receive Less know, all the than suntan, less than sunbathing. <laughs> well, I mean, the sun suntan is radiation. It's just ultraviolet radiation. Um, you know, radiation is not unusual. There's a big spectrum. Now, there, there are people that will say, well, ionizing radiation is different, but it, it's just a little bit different than UV. It, it, uh, it's just like the sun. Uh, a moderate amount is good for you. You need a moderate amount of sunshine to be a healthy human being. We evolved in a, in a, in a world that has a sun. Um, you know, we have response mechanisms. You know, most people, get tanned at least if you are you know of of a uh skin complexion that evolved and had your your ancestors any place other than norway um or scandinavia maybe canada maybe canadians are pretty light-skinned i don't know but not this yeah. canadian <laughs> <laughs> i mean i'm i'm a dark-skinned guy uh you no know, i have i've I, I i've always been dark um and don't get sunburned very easily uh, because my body responds. It, it understands. And, and human bodies have evolved uh, completely different, by the way, than fruit flies. Um, you know, fruit flies live for about 25 days. Humans live for 70 or 80 years. Our, our defense mechanisms, our immune systems are completely different. Uh, and so we have evolved in a, on a radioactive planet. Uh, we, our bodies know how to take advantage of, of certain doses of radiation. Sure. High dose of radiation are dangerous. Don't, don't get me wrong. Um, there's no doubt that one can be overexposed to radiation and can be overexposed very easily, uh, with, with high, uh, energy systems. Um, you know, if somebody gets fully exposed to x-rays for, for too long, they can have real problems if they, 
if if you go to next to a reactor and there's no shielding involved, man, you, you'll die quick. Yeah. Uh, if there weren't, you know, eight, 10 inches worth of concrete between you and the, and the active material in a, in a dry fuel, uh, dry storage container, it'd be dangerous, but we know how to shield it. Yeah. You just use, you use materials, simple materials, steel, concrete, water, lead. Yeah. You know? have, have you seen, have you heard of the show, the 100? at all it's it's it, i just watched it it's a sci-fi show but it's about these people in the space station above earth and they basically think the world's been destroyed by a nuclear war and they they went up there mm-hmm. and uh so they end up they end up finding their way back to earth they managed to sort of escape they're they running out of air and energy on there and they come back down to earth and and they see like uh, mutated you know animals and some sort of like uh, kind of like native sort of tribal people there Mm-hmm. But then there's a secret society of people that are in the underground <clears throat> caverns who survived and they can't expose themselves to radiation at all. But the people that came down from the space station, apparently they've been exposed to the sun for so long up there that they're able to, to, uh, survive in the, in the, you know, in the fresh air. So mm-hmm. it's always interesting to, to know how much that's actually based on, like, if that would really happen, you know, if you're living in a space station, Darren's shaking his head over here. I just well, happened to watch the show, buddy. It's a pretty good show. That's all right. That's all right. Yeah. I mean, you know that that um, astronauts are exposed to ionizing radiation uh, because they're outside the atmosphere. Um, and somebody who spends, you know, I think, I think you hit the occupational dose limit of, which is fifty millisieverts, um, within about three or four months on on the on the uh, shuttle. Um, and so astronauts who are going to uh, a Mars mission would uh, have a pretty high dose that needs to be understood what that levels would would have would do to you. Hmm. Um, and um, again, if you really want to get to Mars, the best way to going to be doing it is to use a nuclear thermal rocket, which can get you there faster, get you set up and have have plenty of energy when you get there. And get you back before you've been overexposed. Hmm. Um, so I gotta, I yeah. gotta ask you about your, about your, um, your time on the submarine. I've, sure. I've talked to some, some people in the Navy before and they've had some interesting experiences, but did you guys ever, ever come across any, you know, fast swimmers or any, any sort of strange objects flying around down there? <laughs> yeah. Well, my own personal experience was I had a, uh, a period of time when we were in the Bahamas doing some, uh, some training and I was standing watch uh, as the officer of the deck, and I had to go up to periscope depth several times during that watch. Beautiful, beautiful day. Um, it was all you know a beautiful sunny day when I got up, and the water there was very clear. And every time that I I scanned around to get to make sure that we were clear to go up to periscope depth, mm-hmm. um, there was a barracuda that was swimming along with us. <laughs> So over a six-hour period, every time I went up, that barracuda was still there. <laughs> They're pretty creepy. Yeah, I've... but we always had, uh, you know, dolphin love to to accompany a submarine because they get to play on the bow wave. No metallic, uh, no metallic uh, machines down there. No, no, no. nothing, <laughs> nothing unknown. No, no. Heard a lot of shrimp. <laughs> I swam with a bear. Where was I? Where was I swimming when there was a barracuda in there? I can't remember if it was like French Polynesia or something. But it's it's a freaky looking 
fish to be swimming with. It bites yeah. you too. They'll bite your ass. Yeah, well, I was pretty protected. Yeah, <laughs> I had plenty of steel between me and him. <laughs> what do you got planned uh, coming up next, Rod? Well, um, this on, on Thursday, I'm going to go see my new grandson. <laughs> That's good. Congratulations. Yeah, I've, I've got four grandkids, and the, the newest one was born May 22nd. So uh, I haven't yet met him. My wife has been helping my daughter and because she, she, she has two other children. So been an active time. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing them. Oh, but nice. in, in general, um, I've uh, declared my independence from, uh, from corporate employment. Oh, at congratulations. The, well, I mean, I, I continue to thank the uh, American taxpayers who made that possible. As they sent me to school, um, several good schools. Uh, and uh, they gave me a good career, and now they're giving me a pension. So I'm trying to, uh, you know, take advantage of the freedom that that gives me to to write what I think needs to be written without worrying about what an employer might think. Um, you know, there there are some constraints when you when you work for somebody. You it's it's not a good thing for a, an employee to mention that the employer is not doing things correctly and making poor choices or even to the uh, employee might want to promote actions that he thinks are really cool that are being done by some other co company. That's not a good thing for an employee to do either. Yeah. So. No kidding. Well, I, I, I like how you don't take that for granted and you appreciate the, the freedom that all your hard work has given you. Well, I don't take it for granted. I, I'm, I, I, I'm a very strong proponent of uh, hard work, not spending everything you make, saving money. Um, and of course, I really like, I, I was, I was very fortunate to have picked a profession where, and, and a time where there was still a pension plan. Um, you know, I started, I went to the Naval Academy at age 17. And so I was able to essentially retire. Um, you know, I, I do some work and, and get some, some money from my podcast and, and my blog and like everyone's going to get a speaking engagement and mm -hmm. publish a few articles, those kind of things. But, um, you know, I don't, that's all gravy. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. the mortgage, the mortgage and the food is paid for. Yeah. I wanted to mention your podcast. It's, I, I listened to quite a few episodes and it's, uh, you know, a lot of it's pretty deep into the energy field and, and nuclear but if anybody's if anybody wants to go deeper into that definitely check out your episodes and yeah it's uh you know harold mentioned again here he says your your podcast is very truthful so he wants to thank you so thank you for being <laughs> honest and and yeah keep keep that podcast up too is that what you're going to do you're going to keep that going well um yeah the, the podcast is is a you know catch as catch can it's been a couple of months since i did an episode but i've got I've got several guests kind of lined up. Um, so that's the Atomic Show podcast. And it's you can get to it by looking at my blog, AtomicInsights.com, and going to the uh, archives page and looking for the, uh, the podcast category. And all the episodes will show up. Or you just do a search for the Atomic Show. Um, it's also on iTunes and all that neat stuff. But the blog is is where I spend a lot, I spend a lot of time writing and then moderating the comments. Um, don't, I, I'm very light moderate, 
moderation, there's a really good community of people that that uh, ask good, solid questions or make good, solid comments. Um, a lot of people with a lot of experience, uh, quite a few PhDs and and professional engineers and those kind of things. But there's also, you know, some of the the general public comes and and is genuinely curious. Every once in a while, of course, there's there's a few you know regular attendees who are pretty fixed in their positions and don't really uh you know they, they're there to spread misinformation but they get ignored or responded to pretty uh, pretty solidly paid trolls um well I, I can't prove they're paid <laughs> but but some of them spend an awful lot of time and uh i i do wonder where they have all that time yeah you know, I, I know why, why I spend all the time doing what I do. I, I'm not sure how some of them have spent as much time, um, you know, picking on my blog as they, as they have. But, yeah, it's okay. Are you on the uh, Twitter or the Facebook or any place like oh, that, that our listeners can track yeah. you down? Yeah, I'm, I'm Atomic Rod uh, on Twitter. And uh, I, I, I don't my, – my Facebook is pretty much – uh, limited to, to people that I really know face to face and uh, family. Um, I, I don't use Facebook as a way to spread my gospel very often. Although, since I do have an awful lot of friends from the Naval Academy, uh, every once in a while there are a few things that I write that I think they will find interesting because I don't write just about energy. I write about politics and policy. And I spent, I spent nine years in Washington. DC and uh, on a staff. So I know a little bit about how things are done in what we call the sausage factory. <laughs> um, so yeah, but Twitter, I think I've got, I think I've done something like 14 or 15,000 tweets uh, on Twitter. So I'm fairly active there. Nice. <laughs> well, we're going to link to all that in the show notes and, and we want to okay. thank, thank you for coming on and helping us learn a little bit about various views of nuclear energy and such. Okay, well, thanks for inviting me. And uh, by the way, have you kept up with the score of that hockey game? Uh, it was one nothing a, fu- a couple minutes ago. Yeah, but so one one nothing Chicago with thirteen oh. minutes left in the third. Okay, so you get to watch the last the last of her. All right, I hope it works out for you. I would, I don't want to see Chicago win again either. <laughs> well, I you know I I lived in the Tampa Bay area for about ten years and. My son-in-law is, grew up playing hockey, and he, he convinced me that it's a really good game. So i got to go finish watching that game. So. Right on. Well, thanks a lot, Rod. All right. Take okay, care. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back to the show. 
That was a chat with Atomic mm. Rod Adams. Changed it up. Did I? Yeah. Mm. What'd you think? Yeah, I like it better. It's more concise and to the point. Really? Instead of throwing Grimerica show out there. All no, the I meant there. about the show, about Rod. Yeah, I know what you meant. <laughs> anyway, it was good. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Oh, that's what you meant, what I thought about the show. Yes, I get yes. I, I had uh, one of those afterwards thinking like I heard uh, Adam Curry talking about uh, him from No Agenda and I had all these questions pop up in my head after the fact so it's one of those episodes where I wish I would have asked a lot of different questions so and a regretful one for me well what are you gonna do you always get nervous on those ones eh the ones you have lots of questions for like remember Perkins yeah a lot yeah I got really nervous on that one weird Hopefully it's a good time. Yeah, maybe not. Wonder why. Why what? Why do you get nervous? I don't know. Hmm. Anyway, it was a good one. I enjoy I'm pro-nuclear, I think, right? What, I, what their option is or really, I don't see anything. All the renewables are really just... Zero-point energy? That's not here yet, though. <laughs> Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where that goes in 10 or 15 It's the years. only viable option without some sort of fucking paradigm-shifting invention. Whether <laughs> it's out there and it's being suppressed, which is maybe possible, or whether it's fucking legitimately not invented yet. Yeah. Or it is just keeps getting invented and it just keeps getting bought. Right, you invent that thing, someone shows up at your house, oh yeah, you want to keep going with this, or do you just want fucking $200 million? Okay. <laughs> Gonzo. Cease and desist, fucking confidentiality agreement, done. I would say that happens more than people getting killed. Mm, yeah, probably. Someone shows up here with $200 million, but I gotta quit doing the podcast? See ya. Pro probably, what would you do? <laughs> 200 million? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's kind of hard I'd, to say no to they that. They could watch me burn the studio. I'll just But they'd have, to be, they'd have to have a, a clause that says you can't we invest can't that money in anything that's, like, related to this at all. So you can't, like, start a UFO research company or you can't, you know, start developing better nuclear energy or, do you know what I mean? There would be, no, I don't think we'd have to worry about that clause. I think it would be more like you can't start another podcast. No. No, it would be more like they're, you can't. Worried that we're you gonna, can't help Bigfoot, you know, hunting Bigfoot or not no. hunting Bigfoot. I got at least five million of that fucking two hundred million is going to be saved for squatching out of a helicopter with like a fucking no, buddy, come on, twenty cow. No, seriously, big scope on him. He knows you're there. Yeah, you're never going to get him like that. A couple bears are just going to get fucking demolished, but there'll be so little left of them that they won't even know if it was Bigfoot, or they'll have to do. I'll have to run DNA on it, which is whatever. I got money for that. That's just mean. They know you're there. They know, they can tell when the trail cams are there. They can tell when the helicopter's flying around trying to look at them. You really believe, believe that? I do. <laughs> Did you see any Bigfoots out in the bush? No, I didn't. No, nothing? I got pretty scared, though. Did you? Yeah. Take us through it. Really? Yeah. It was one of those right next to my tent. Was when, it? I, when I tried to go to sleep, like okay, it so was I'll keep so loud. While you tell the story, that to bring back the. No, I just went for an overnight hike, and uh, 
by the time I got into my tent, I heard this like thum thum, like almost like hooves on the ground around me, and I didn't know if it was like hooves or a cougar or a deer or a bear, so it kind of scared me. Did you investigate? No, you tweeted. I did tweet at some point. I was at the only campground, the only backcountry campground that I had probably cell service, so I did like save like a little bit of batteries just so I could send a tweet out. You had cell service? Barely, like the extended New Rogers extended service. Huh. And, uh, yeah, it was pretty freaky. I was going to try and stargaze, but it took so long for the stars to come out. It was like one in the morning by that time. And by that time I was lying, like not sure if I should play dead or actually like make a <laughs> rus- ruckus in my tent. Cause like there was animals walking around the tent. So for sure, for sure. Footsteps, not humans walking around the tent. What sort? I don't know. Like a deer. Deers. One of the other campers, I asked if they had anything walking around their tent the next day. And they said, uh, they had these walking sticks with rubber on you the top, get a and it was all chewed, chewed up. So there was some animal chewing their walking sticks. You should get a GoPro. I was thinking you if could I could have it shooting at yourself. I know, watching it from the tent. <laughs> Holy fuck! <laughs> then just have a Roman candle. Yeah, because yeah, I was like, we know do Graham. I look? Do we I know like... fucking Graham isn't going to have a gun. No, of course not. I was going to have a big stick maybe with me. So I had bear spray in the tent with me, just in this case. This is the outro. I know. <laughs> That's okay. Can you piece that together and put no, it in the intro? Just keep going. So imagine if we could research. You know how, like, in the States, they put $22 billion into climate change research? Imagine if, like, half of that could go into nuclear research. I mean, really, the nuclear energy gets, gets shafted as far as the money involved. Imagine how far we could be now. Hmm. What do you think? I'll use some of my 200 mil for that, too. Yeah. There you go. Money power well spent. Up, power up everything with a little backyard nuke. So uh, anyway, I think you should uh, get back on the train with a GoPro so we can watch what's haunting you. So just a little bunny hopping around or something. It's, it sounded pretty loud. Did it? Yeah. It was Bigfoot. No, I would have heard noises. And smelt them. Yeah. You probably would have throw, threw a couple of pebbles my way before stomping down to the campsite. Anyways, we want to thank Rod for coming on the show and enlightening us a little bit about the world of the nuclear. Absolutely. Come back anytime. Of course, check out his podcast. Uh, Graham will link to that in the show notes. Uh, check out his blog um, and support the show, grammarica.ca slash support. Help us uh, with a little bit of gas money. And sign up for the newsletter. Did you say Spam Gram in there? Spam Gram. Gram at gramerica.com. That's G-R-A-H-A-M, not H. G-R-A-M. H. That's a H crime. Yeah, guys. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And uh, we will see you next week. The next few episodes, actually, um, after this one will be pre-records no yes. we have a couple to release what do you mean by pre-records well we'll have recorded them and set them on the timer because i'm going away no uh oh yeah probably so the next two no, we'll have one out before they go away this comes out on this oh yeah you're right yeah. Why don't, yeah yeah so we'll be a 
those are a little ways off yet, another yeah. week away. Yeah. So when you listen to this, I'm still working. But when you listen to the next one, I'm vacationing. That's right. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. See you next week. We all need a credit card mortgage in the yard. Does anyone think about it or as few have publicly said? Central banks run government despite constitutions in the pledge. Doesn't matter who you vote for, the government still gets in based on lies, promises, and sin. Lincoln warned us of the enemy within, and I quote from him. Money powers prey upon the nations in times of peace and conspire against it in times of adversity. It is more despotic than monarchy, more insolent than autocracy, more selfish than bureaucracy. I see in the near future a crisis approaching that unnerves me and causes me to tremble for the safety of my country. Corporations have been enthroned, an era of corruption will follow, and the money powers of the country will endeavor to prolong its reign by working upon the prejudice of the people and their need to borrow. We all need a credit card mortgage in the yard. Protest. We all need a credit card mortgage in the yard. Protest. Protest can be a powerful thing. Money backed by notes, corporations run governments and they sell us back zirconian imports. Diamonds trade on Wall Street, lobbyists own the ports, Capitol Hill, Whitehall and the courts. All sorts of red letter mail through your door. You throw them out but like banknotes, they just print more. So, so what's so federal about the Federal Reserve? Not even attached to the state yet wearing a title they don't deserve. Money is debt, the cartel prints what we earn. We're buried in credit cards like ashes in a urine. Like a mouse on a wheel chasing a cheddar check to pay your interest for your home 25 years before you can call it your own and even when i buy my groceries i pay with plastic for so-called ease a new catchphrase enter your pin number please now let me give you some uh, advice i ain't fooling around this time you understand we all need a credit card mortgage in the yard protest we all need a credit card mortgage in the yard Don't have the money today, that's okay. Put it on layaway. You pay back twice as much, but 12 months seems a long way away. So to save them for a rainy day. 34% annual payment rate or APR. You know it's too high, but you want that new car. Lost your job and suddenly walk in a fall. Your subprime mortgage is eating all your pennies from the penny jar. Cash is king, but off with his head. Replaced by credit instead. Debt is heavy as lead. Worry follows you to bed. Pretending like you're not home, you even stop answering the phone. Shoulders not big enough to bear the weight of debt alone. Three pounds over my overdraft, and that suddenly turned into 30. Banks crushing the little guy. Banks playing dirty.